iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome once again to another magnificent episode of the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, the second string Champions League final goes to Chelsea. But did we learn anything about the main event? We'll examine Leeds and West Brom's contrasting seasons in the top flight and ask what's next in North London for both Spurs and Arsenal. All that and more on today's episode of The Game. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Later on, we'll also go down memory lane with football's greatest collaborations from the world of music. Much to discuss. To help me through it all then, once again, Alison Rudd, Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson. How are you doing, guys? Very well. Very well. Thank you. Good, good. Can't get enough of watching three all games. Hugh, two in a row. <laughs> Peter Berlinkin last week, which we'll part to one side for, for Tom. And uh, this week, Derby County. What a game that was. The relegation well, decider. When you say what a game, I hope you don't yeah. mean quality of football. No, because for drama, was all the drama. Yeah, the first half especially, <laughs> it was just a joke. You, you feel like, but you're watching it, you feel like both of these teams deserve to go down. Um, <laughs> but somehow, somehow Derby got a get-out-of-jail-free card. But great drama. I feel bad for Rotherham as well, because Rotherham yeah. had so many games towards the end of the season and so many chances to win the game against Cardiff as well. And that late stinger uh, rescued yeah. Wayne Rooney's Derby, really. Yeah. And Paul Warren, he looked like a broken man. In fact, he said, I am a broken man. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll see. He's had five seasons at Rotherham, all of which have ended in either promotion to or relegation from the championship. That's a that's a roller coaster for you. Yeah, I'd, I'd keep him, though. How is it possible that one goal, only one goal, can be the difference between finishing bottom and stay, safety yeah. for Sheffield Wednesday? That's, I mean, that's bonkers. Yeah. You wouldn't put that in a film script, would you? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And also Wickham, of course, who who I think deserve, you know, they, they were relegated by one point in the end and everyone thought they were going to be down with probably yeah. a record minimal points total in the championship. They did their fans proud. But again, they left points out there this season. They only needed one more and they would have stayed up. And I think they'll look to a couple of games that they had a couple of goal leads in and gave away as well. But there you go. Look, another entertaining season in the EFL. And we've got the playoffs to look forward to. We'll focus on that uh, in the next episode of the Game Podcast. In fact, next week, probably. Um, but let's start with the games this weekend in the Premier League. And, and in particular, at the Etihad Stadium, where it finished Manchester City 1, Chelsea 2. This one was pretty entertaining, to be perfectly honest as Thomas Tuchel beat Pep Guardiola for the second time in the space of three weeks. My question is, really, did we learn anything ahead of their meeting in the Champions League final at the end of the month? Especially as Guardiola made nine changes to his team, Thomas Tuchel made five. Alison, what do you think? What did we learn? We learned that Pep might be obsessed with mind games after all, because he hasn't had to have any. Maybe he's having fun with them because he doesn't need them in the Premier League. So 
what's he going to do? Um, he's been, been pretending for quite a long time that the Premier League matters more than Champions League. That is utter rot. This is what matters. So he is prepared to, if you like, sacrifice a Premier League game or make a Premier League match look slightly amusing for the sake of, hopefully, from his point of view, winning in the biggie. Um, it was... It was very theatrical, I have to say. There was all that space for Rhys James to run into. That space will not exist in the Champions League final. So it was, it was just like pretend football from Manchester City. Look, you know, look, look what could happen. Look how easy it might be in Wembley, stroke Istanbul, stroke Wales. And it, I just felt, I just felt it was uh, bordering on silly, to be quite honest. Um, and I, it makes. I think it would make neutrals hope that Chelsea win the Champions League because they they took it far more seriously as a contest, and you know, Premier League has integrity, and they were rightful winners. They played the more um, <laughs> grown up football, and so um, yeah, it might it might have gone one 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 idiosyncratic move too far, Mister Guardiola. I think. I feel like that was slightly tongue-in-cheek, Alison. I mean, you can't, <laughs> you can't actually believe Chelsea Chelsea took it more seriously, do you? Yeah. No, because the changes they made are not as radical as the changes that... Oh, Pep played 5-1-4. He's not going to play that, is he? I mean, Chelsea played the same system and the players that were, players that were rested were not, like you'd say, 100% certain to start. I mean, you know, you could, you, we, could, we could spend the next hour discussing whether ZH is a starter or not. That would be a, a, an acceptable argument. Mm, a, a very boring podcast as well. But yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a mind game inclusion, is it? No. It was no. like a, it was a lineup that said, I'm going to take any chance of there being any sort of conclusions or insights being drawn from this game in terms of looking ahead to the Champions League final. I'm just going to put it in a completely different dimension. Altogether, as you say, as with you know, the team of midfielders, the team of I wish I could play ten midfielders played one midfielder, which is like the most anti Pep Guardiola Manchester City thing that we've ever seen. And then obviously in the second half they put on lots of midfielders and improved. So I, th- I honestly think he, yeah, he just wanted to remove it so far from what the Champions League final is going to look like, and he did so. And but ultimately they that cost them. But he also has the benefit of trying something. Like you know, he might come to. You know, he's playing against. He's playing against the team. He's playing against oh, the team. Tom, 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 got Tom, the Tom, better Tom. of him like, before. You may as well say. You, may you know, say, come on. They all went out eating bowls of trifle because. Now that I would watch. That I would watch if Pep can teach them to play that level of football whilst eating trifle. Now that that if I he would, was preparing that I would for watch. A very specific injury crisis ahead of the Champions League final. Then maybe Tom. But I don't, I don't, think, think, I don't think. I don't think they were bad. I mean, and there's also the wider context of the game that they pro- they could and probably should and would have won that game had certain decisions gone for them. Had they taken their chances, had Aguero scored the penalty. So it, the framing of the conversation of Pep, oh, what a, what a silly little bugger, cheeky little minx. Uh, <laughs> uh, tri- tricking us all is, is helped by the fact that they were beaten and yet yeah, Chelsea played okay but I didn't think City were terrible and I, I thought some of what they did was quite interesting in terms of play, playing the ball and beating Chelsea's press at times and all of a sudden having four or five players in attack 
and you literally attack v defense. I thought that was quite interesting at times. And so, fine, you can laugh at my suggestion that he was trying something, but and I and it probably was heavily heavily couched in mind games. And as Gregor says, let's make sure we can't talk about this being the preview to the Champions League final. But I don't think I don't think it was a terrible. And and B, I think it had some merit to give it a try. And then they could they could have won the game. They could have won the game. They didn't. They didn't. Let's be honest. They didn't lose three nil, and were awful. Let's be honest. No, but I mean, I'm not even seeing it was a, that it was necessarily a, a direct criticism that he did it. It's just fascinating that he did it. You know, you know, Chelsea made changes as well, but they played the way that Chelsea are going to play, and the way that we've come to recognise of Chelsea playing. He seems to have this because I think partly because of what happened in the FA Cup semi final. I think it seems to have this. He didn't didn't want. He was just desperate not to have a kind of prequel, so he removed it so far from what the Champions League final is going to look like, and that yeah, so in itself it, suggests some some sort of little lack of confidence in the way that his his team is his chances against Chelsea. I think in the final. I get what Gregor is trying to say here, which is maybe Pep Guardiola is, is more concerned about Chelsea than we think. He wanted to give nothing away because in reality, if he played his strongest team in the way that he would play in the Champions League final and Chelsea either beat them or certainly learned the recipe of, of what was going to work in the Champions League final, that would have been a massive blow to Manchester City. So why not just in one of those ways when you're just a kid and you think you're going to lose the ball game, why not just smash all the pieces off the board, <laughs> exactly. storm out the room? That's what Pep did, basically, didn't he? He just threw a little football tantrum. And I said, no way, no, no, no. No, that's a bit far. Come on, he still picked a team of some very, very good players. And there they was don't clearly... have any bad players. Uh, you no, know, no but that's what I mean. So, it's, it's, so if you picked Raheem Sterling is... and Ferran Torres at centre-back, you would have said, well, he still picked good players. Hey, he didn't, did he? He still played defenders in defence and he still played... A midfielder in midfield, <laughs> and then played loads of strikers. There was there's still there's still thought to it, and it, and you could see watching the game that there was still you know there was still a plan. You know, Laporte and the defenders were, as I say, chipping those 30, 40 yard passes over Chelsea's midfield to their forwards. And so I'm, you know, I think he, I think he's a genius. I think he was trying something. It didn't quite work, and we'll see something different in the final. Yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah, he's gone long ball. That's definitely going to happen in the Champions Not League long final. Ball. Not long ball, remember Louis van Gaal? Long pass. Yes. Not long ball. pass midfield, exactly. exactly. Why waste time in the middle of the pitch? Exactly. Why compete with Kante? We know how great he is. I think, you know, you can see the merit. The longer you talk about it, the guy knew what he was doing. He's been watching Barnsley all season and now he knows what to do. Is get it into the final third and yeah, press. football. Exactly. exactly. Gregor, the man who said he thought Eden Hazard shouldn't be sharing jokes with his teammates at the end of the game. <laughs> Did the managers disrespect the fixture? given the race for the top four that Chelsea were involved in? No, as I say, I don't think... Uh, I think Alison's right. I think Chelsea did kind of take it a little bit more seriously because although they made changes, it still was the they way Chelsea... To. They, yeah, they needed to. Of course they had, yeah, of course they had more skin in the game. It's Manchester City could afford to do this. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made all the changes and played this completely experimental sort of jazz formation. Um, so... No, I don't think it was any disrespect that Chelsea are going to finish in the top four. It's not; they're not really going to affect the the rest of the race for the top four. I don't think for the last last place behind Manchester United and them, uh, and Manchester City are going to win the league. So, no, I don't think so. Alison Rudd, should Penenkas be banned? Well, not at the exact moment that the whole nation knows what one is. I mean, it's taken a while, hasn't it, for people <laughs> to understand when you say Penenka, what it might be outside of these elite circles we walk in, Hugh. <laughs> the, public, the public now knows what a Penenka is. I think anyone watching that game 
the most sort of, you know, vague fan of football would have realised what Aguero was trying to achieve, known what it was called and found it hilariously hilarious that it failed. And um, given, given that football can be for the neutral, quite dour and what's the point and oh, what's going on, th- things like that light it up. I think you've got to think about the wider public, the entertainment value. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful things. I don't agree that they disrespect the opposition or they disrespect the goalkeeper or they disrespect your own teammates. Everyone should enter a penalty competition or taking a penalty knowing what they do best when they take one. And if Aguero thought he had it in the bag, then he had every right to, to, to try it. But Mendy made it. Mendy made it look so easy, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think he deserves deserves some credit because, yeah. you know, a lot of goalkeepers, they choose a way and they go, they kind of commit to it. And he had the kind of, I don't know, the instinct and was aware enough to kind of fault himself and the agility to stop. And, and I don't know, it was a bad penink as well, but, you know, he had, because Aguero did kind of... You know, he slowed down his runners before it. His swing was was kind of his backswing was really slow. It was quite clear, certainly in a replay. But I think Mendy deserves a bit of credit as well. Let's talk about Leeds United next. They're the great entertainers in the Premier League. A Champions League final with them would be crazy. We know that much. And they had a fantastic performance. They played some beautiful football. They beat Spurs at Elland Road. And it leaves big questions for the Londoners that we'll come to in a moment. But firstly, Tom, Leeds have been exactly as advertised this season, haven't they? 15 wins, 5 draws, 15 defeats. They've scored 53. They've conceded 53 they're on a massive 50 points right now for a promoted side as well. Are they amongst the best sides to come up from the championship that we've seen? Because of late, we've had Wolves. They reached Europe in their first season in the top flight. Sheffield United ninth as well. Where do Leeds rank? I'd say definitely up there with Wolves and Sheffield United in those seasons. The challenge will come next season because looking at Sheffield United, for example, the second season, as we know, for these promoted sides is often more difficult or certainly as difficult. But I think it's interesting the intro that you gave to Leeds there and talking about as advertised. And I was thinking about that and the frenzy both on the pitch and the frenzy of narrative around them off the pitch. And so I'd rather than uh, use any of my own football analysis, I just delved into some statistics for some help. And it was fascinating to see that for tackles and tackles won, they are top of any team in the Premier League uh, ahead of Southampton and Leicester similar teams who work very hard off the ball. They're also top for recovering possession. 130 more times they've done that than Liverpool, who are obviously the famous pressing from the front and trying to frantically win the ball back. And so, yes, they are quite prominent for total shots and for chances created. They're fifth in both of those uh, metrics. But it was interesting for me to see that defensively, that seemed to be where there's a real strength, their, their work rate off the ball. And so just in terms of trying to analyse what it is that makes them so good, I think that's the starting point. And when you think back to, um, you know, we referenced it earlier with Barnsley and we're talking about the Champions League final going to be nil-nil because both teams are going to be so defensively astute. I think Leeds deserve a lot of credit in that respect because I think a lot of people said, oh, it's all a bit kamikaze, it's all a bit mad, who knows what's going to happen. I think lots of people were guilty of that, but actually 
they work incredibly hard and defensively they're a lot stronger than I think people give them credit for. I mean they can still be kamikaze. <laughs> they can absolutely but, I, but, I, but was, right. I was just interested to see that they were top in those, you know, for tackles and for recoveries. I thought they'd be like, yeah. you know, huge huge statistics kind of put them equal for everything, you know, mid table, score loads of goals, concede loads of goals, win games, lose games. But actually when you burrow into it, it's maybe defensively where they're they're strong in a in a few respects certainly. The thing that struck me is just their is their their energy and fitness, and particularly in the contrast to Spurs. That must be you know that's that's part of what makes Leeds fans so enraptured by this team is that you see that that kind of that that level of energy and desire just about every single week. And a lot of teams, a lot of supporters of teams can't see you know they can't say that. That's, that really is the number one thing I think that they see, and there are you know there are so many things that Bielsa has brought to them, and how he's elevated their play, how you know the tactical, the way that they set up is pretty unique and stuff. But it, it, all all of it starts from the energy and desire, and that was what I thought was so strikingly contrasting to to Spurs. Um, another thing is none of the big six have won at Leeds this season, so they they can go toe to toe with with the best teams, with the teams who think that they should come to Leeds and and win. I think the challenge actually next season, as much as anything, will be probably against the lesser teams. Maybe breaking teams down will sit sit back a little bit more. Because if, if Leeds have got space to, to break into, then that's when they're at their, their deadliest. So, and we saw that, you know, the amount of times, down, particularly down the left-hand side, that Leeds just, they just had so much time and space and just made Serge Aurea look like he should not be playing in the Premier League, uh, which we've said on numerous occasions. Sorry, Serge. But, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, no, they're they're just a joy to watch. But I, as I say again, it comes. It all starts from the energy and desire that they have in abundance. Alison, do you think Leeds uh, will improve next season? And if if you do, how so? Well, we you, you you mentioned Sheffield United and how impressive they were when they came up, and it all went horribly wrong, didn't it? I mean, it will be difficult. I think signs that it might. They might carry on are that, weirdly, one big sign, I think, is that post-match, every time Patrick Bamford speaks, he gets the giggles, which (laughs) implies that they are made to work, I think probably made to work harder than any other group of players in the Premier League. I mean, physically, physically. I mean, no one else does murder ball, even though it's, you know, they must now be looking at it. They don't. Um, and he was joking after this victory that he, he wondered if he could have a day off and was told, no, no, you could have scored a hat-trick and no, you're not getting a day off. And he laughed about it. It's all about the players buying into it. I mean, I think the comparison is actually with Chelsea who buy in as a team to a, a system. And then the minute they sort of, they, then they sort of fall out of it. They don't like the, the regime if it's got too tough or asking too much of them or the timings of training isn't to their liking, they'll give it, they'll give new methods a chance and then they'll fall out of love with it quite quickly. And it does happen in, in, in all sports, you've got to keep things, things fresh and exciting. And it was exciting for the Leeds players because they were in the Premier League. This is what they've been trying to do. Uh, they got disappointed at the first attempt and then they did it. And so they will buy into working really hard. But now they've sort of established themselves as 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 having a right to be in the Premier League and getting all the compliments that 
Tom and Gregor are giving them, what do you do to keep it fresh and not make them feel just absolutely exhausted next season? And that will be entirely down to um, Bielsa. I mean, we don't even know that for sure he'll be there, do we? And if he is there, that is, is he capable of being adaptable? Because what we're praising is the fact that he's really, um, you know, he doesn't waver at all. You know, it's the same approach throughout. It's really strict stuff. So, can he keep them those players excited? I, I mean, that's the unknown. Maybe he can. Maybe he can. Because I got Leeds completely wrong. I predicted they'd get, they'd get burnout, and they didn't. But maybe the burnout will happen next season. I mean, that's not an illogical thing to suggest, is it? I think it comes down to stamina off the pitch, in a sense, as well, and, and refreshing the squad. You know, financially. They've got to make some astute signings, and Allison. We've all we both we all mentioned Sheffield United, and we talked at the start of the season about some of the signings they made. They brought in a lot of young players that, when you look at back at the season they had, maybe weren't weren't quite ready, weren't the most astute signings. So it'd be interesting to see how they refresh the squad with players because there's another element that Bielsa has got a lot out of these players. I think Greg has talked before about some of them ultimately being Championship players maybe lower Premier League players and they're performing at their absolute maximum. And so Alison's right, it's whether you can continue that. One interesting contrast with Sheffield United is that, and this is a slightly cheesy point, but they made their home ground the fortress, as we always say, in their first season. Their fans being behind them was such a massive thing. Leeds have done what they've done this season without any fans at Ellen Road. And if the world keeps progressing in the way that it's going, for their second season, the difficult second season, they'll have their fans back and that could be a massive factor as well, I think. Uh, we'll see if they can improve next year. They, they've been fantastic this season. I can't remember who predicted. Uh, is it Was it me that they might struggle? I think I said 17th. I think it was so you. I, I think yeah, it was I you. Think- I think I, I think I said seventeenth. So essentially, I'm right. They're staying up. So you know, there's no need to think. No need to think that I was wrong on that early season prediction. However, I did predict that Tottenham Hotspur would be finishing in the top four at the end of this season. That was one of my early hot takes. Uh, I can now concede that it is very unlikely to happen after that, li- that defeat to Leeds. Ryan Mason doesn't look like he'll be their manager for for any sort of long term. So next season, they will need a new boss. And there are reports that the club wants a manager in the mould of none other than Mauricio Pochettino, their former manager. They want a person dedicated to improving young players. I wonder what kind of manager do Spurs really need, Gregor? Pochettino. <laughs> <laughs> they basically turned into Arsenal. They threw all the eggs in the basket of a shiny piece of real estate in North London and they stink of complacency and entitlement. And they've like, that, that, that's what brought Spurs to the top table. They, they invested in young players. They had a, you know, a bright young thing in the dugout and that's what got them to the stage. And then when they when they kind of it looked like it was wobbling, they threw it all behind Josie Mourinho. <laughs> and <laughs> and that's failed miserably. And it was all just desperately to try and, you know, claw on to the to the to stay in the top four. Arsenal used to develop players and, you know, sign player young players and improve them and they and then they threw all their weight behind the behind the new stadium and they grew complacent and they've lost and they you know, they've taken their eye off the ball. There, 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 there's huge parallels between the two. And so you know, all, uh, for both of them, it, it's about having a structure again and having a kind of plan and identity rather than just kind of desperately trying to stay in the top four. And I, I don't know who the manager is going to be to, to replace 
uh, to, to, to come in in a Pochettino mould, but they do need someone who's kind of with young and a bit of energy, I think. Because, and I still, I say it one more time, I, I just think it's one of the most bizarre things to happen in the Premier League in a long, long time that Ryan Mason is in charge of Tottenham Hotspur. You know, someone who is 29, who's managing an academy for three years, who you know, I, I could, you can even have his A licence by now. How is this guy in charge of Tottenham Hotspur? How have they come to this point? I just uh, it blows my mind, and I'm amazed there's not more, not being more kind of made of that. It's like, oh, this is a chance for a for a guy. You know, he's got connection with the team and stuff. It's mental that Tottenham Hotspur have Ryan Mason in charge of them. It's bizarre, and I think it kind of it's indicative of of how far they've, how much they've taken their eye off the ball, how complacent they've become. That that is the man. Leading Tottenham Hotspur just now. There's nothing against Ryan Mason, by the way. It's just it's far, it's just ridiculous. But it's it's the ultimate expression of the rule of football. Whereas where if something goes wrong, whether it's the national team or a club, you end up appointing the exact opposite. And Ryan Mason, you will find Gregor is the exact opposite of Jose Mourinho. He knows all the players' names. Doesn't he doesn't get confused because there are two Harrys in the team? He has a connection with the club. He loves the club so much because they gave him a chance after his injury and have looked after him. He they're his mates. He's 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 absolutely everything that Jose Mourinho wasn't. And because that was identified as the problem in the end, there was antagonism and a lack of feeling and empathy and understanding of the Tottenham way. They appointed someone, albeit on an interim basis, who has all the things that Jose didn't have. But if you do that, of course, you also appoint someone who doesn't have all the good things that Jose Mourinho has, which is a sort of brutality of approach and an understanding of where where a team is failing. So it's, I, I know or you're astonished, Gregor. I know you're astor- astonished, Gregor, but it is entirely logical within the rules of f- the wider football world. I mean, it's pushing boundaries, though. It really is. It's just, I just find it completely bizarre. If you're looking at that team now and you think, it, Martin Hardy wrote in his report a little kind of thought experiment about what if, imagine if Bielsa was in charge of this team, what what might they look like? And, you know, we've talked about it's the biggest thing about Leeds is that they had the buy-in from all the players and they could see an opportunity to to improve themselves and to, you know, improve their lives and their professional, professional kind of, you know, their, their careers, their whole careers. Uh, what would Spurs make of that? What would they make of someone coming in there seeking great demands from them? I think, I think a lot of them, the door would hit the backside in the way out. I think there's, I think their time at Tottenham is up. You know, they they came close to to doing something pretty special with Pochettino, but they've been kind of sucked into that vortex of complacency at Tottenham, and I think most of them are not good enough anymore for Spurs. And I think they need, I think they need a huge overhaul. You've got to look at that running and think it was possible as well. Southampton, Sheffield United, Leeds, Wolves, Villa and Leicester still to come as well. I mean, it's highly unlikely that they'll make it given the teams ahead of them at the moment and the, the varying form as well. Um, but but it, does, it does make you wonder looking at the idea that they want sort of a younger manager and maybe understands the club a little bit better and and wants to bring through young talent, that they might look at a couple of, I think, impressive English managers who've been in the Premier League this year. Scott Parker, who's been at Fulham, and in particular, Graham Potter at Brighton. Now, those aren't names in the ilk of Jose Mourinho. In fact, they're more Ryan Mason than Jose Mourinho, to be perfectly honest, in terms of experience. So 
would you, Alison, bring in either of those managers? Are they are they relevant? I, I I personally look at someone like Nuno Espirito Santo and think maybe given the defensive record that he's had as a manager, he might be suitable for the club. Might not play that flashy style of football, but might get better defensively. I, I don't know. Who do you think? My postman is a big Spurs fan. And uh, <laughs> he said, he said, so what do you think? What do you think? And I said, well, I'm pretty sure they're going to want to appoint someone with a connection to the club because, you know, Jose didn't and, and it, the fans really didn't buy into it because, you know, of the history. I think they'd quite like to appoint somebody, you know, who has, who's played there or just knows the club. And so my postman went, yeah, so who are you, who are you thinking then? And I said, well, you know, an obvious candidate could be Scott Parker. He went, right, nice knowing you, and turned around and left. <laughs> so I don't, I, I, I don't think it's enough that there's a connection, actually. I think they need to forget that because, again, it's a knee-jerk reaction to um, the fans were, when Mourinho was appointed. I think they need to uh, appoint somebody. Well, I think they're limited because, because you know, you're not going to get the top-notch manager you might want because it's a tough job because they won't be in the Champions League and players will leave because they're not in the Champions League and players will leave, as Gregor says, because they're not good enough. Um, you need someone who's not scared to, who's just unafraid of what might be ahead and has a bit of a track record. I, I agree with my postman that Scott Parker, it's, it's too much about sentiment and not enough about knowing he can do the job. Um, I'd be really interested to see I don't think it would be the right thing to do, but I think it would be more interesting than anything else if Graham Potter was given the job because he's on that trajectory and you sort of think, well, is he going to come unstuck or is this man in 10 years' time going to be lauded as one of the great managers of all time? And we're not going to know that unless he takes on a difficult job at a big club and Spurs would definitely be that. He's certainly uh, so impressive, Potter, in terms of how calm he is. He, he's been flirting with relegation throughout the season and yet you would never ever know it to listen to his pre and post match chats he's he knows what he wants to achieve he clearly is very good at getting on with the people above him they've they've not even given any any indication that they feel they may have made a mistake or he may have taken on more than he could chew um i don't know if it's right for spurs it's right it's right for us in the media <laughs> i think it would be really interesting if graham potter got the job the thing with modern football is it's about more than just a manager, though, isn't it? And Greg has touched on it by talking about how poor the squad is. If you're going to give it to Graham Potter, you also have to discuss what the overall plan is. You don't just give it to Graham Potter and say, well, good luck, son, try and get us in the top four. There has to then be, okay, right, well, we'll probably lose some of our best players. We can get rid of Serge Aurier just to make sure Gregor Robertson stays happy <laughs> and we can bring in some young players. But you're going to get two seasons and maybe the best you'll do is a cup run and you know Europa League. But not. In, I never get the sense that enough of that happens. Uh, you know, We're going to talk about another club shortly in Arsenal. It's a similar problem. You can't just change the manager when the players aren't good enough and the system isn't there and there isn't an overall identity. And your overall goal is so warped every season by a desire to reach the very top and the, all the money that's there. So I, I, I agree with Alison. It would be great to see Graham Potter get the job, but it can't just be... Oh, he's exciting. He's he's a young manager, you know, who plays the right way and invests in youth. It needs there needs to be more than that. There needs to be more than that because, in some respects, that's the inverse of what they did with Jose Mourinho. They hired him and went, "Go on, you fix it. 
without doing it the Jose Mourinho way of bringing in some big leaders, spending quite a bit of money and changing the squad to how he wanted. They didn't do it the Jose Mourinho way. And so Jose Mourinho failed. If you're going to invest in Graham Potter, you have to do it the Graham Potter way wholeheartedly or Graham Potter will fail. And that's that comes back to Gregor's point about the club being in a bad state at the minute. But they're also in a bad state financially. So yeah, which it makes it very difficult. So the chances are you'll they'll look at another appointment who you think can motivate this squad better and, and get more out of them. And there are people out there undoubtedly who do that. I mean look at the well, look at the impact that Tuchel's had at, at Chelsea. And the thing the question mark about Potter or and Parker, and you could even throw uh, Hasenhutl in, into that as well is you know you, clearly that for talented coaches and you can see some evidence of you know very good coaching and you see that in this in this style of play and whatnot but you wonder how much of their struggles their kind of flirtation with relegation is just down to the tools available tools at their disposal and that, you know it's, it's a big leap it's a big leap and I'm not entirely I would actually put Hasenhutl above both of them for that leap but it is a big leap and I, I think you're asking a lot of them if it's just this is the squad of players still we, we can't afford to really do too much to it because I think that's the truth um, it's a big ask for any manager yeah I don't know how enthused the fans would be about a manager who's got two of the three 9-0 defeats in Premier League <laughs> history uh, on his on his resume but there you go um, I, I don't know about Tottenham Hotspur I, I, I don't know personally I just I, I, I I think you need a manager who's got a style of football. I don't, I don't think it's all about managing big egos or even having run a big club before, but certainly someone with strong ideas on the field of play. I actually think there's enough there's enough quality in the Spurs squad to be challenging for the top four. Um, yes, they certainly need to improve in a couple of areas, in particular defence, and, and look, they need to bring some people in and get some people out. Most teams do, let's be honest, but... To have Harry Kane, to have Heung-Min Son in your team, Lucas Moura, Bergwijn. Um, this season, Gareth Bale as well. Midfielders like Celso and Dombele, Hoybert, Sissoko. I mean, they're, 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 they aren't world beaters. They're also not that bad. No, nowhere near as bad as what we're seeing. And then, Gregor, I know you're. The, he's looking pensive right now. He's questioning the idea that those players are any good. But the reality of the situation is they got played off the park by Leeds United. You know, that, that can't happen with the players that they've got in their squad. You know, Leeds United can't play a brand of football that makes them look like Brazil in 1970 against you. <laughs> Let, let's be honest. Let's be honest here. So all I'm saying is strong ideas and a, and a passionate manager is really all that they should be going for right now and someone that's personable. You know, someone that gets the fans on side with the club, someone that can get the players happy again. That's it, because Pochettino was that guy. He was the the warm, the cuddly, the fuzzy manager. The players loved him. They enjoyed what they were doing each and every day, and it showed on the pitch. That's all I'm saying. Go on, Tom. But I think you're right, But I, and this is almost, we're heading into talking about football management as a PR exercise, and we've talked a lot about fan power and the involvement of fans. It's almost like there needs to be an overall agreement about where we're heading here, and because there's a genuine point, they might lose Harry Kane this summer. And so you could bring in a Ralph Hasenhutl or a Graham Potter, lose Harry Kane for 150 million, and you're then in the kind of get post Gareth Bale era with Andre Villas Boas, where you sign a load of players and try and redo the squad. But the only problem then was that you tried to replicate what happened before without giving anyone any time to properly change anything. So what you're saying is fair. But everyone has to buy into it because if the fans then get unhappy with the performances on the pitch and battling around in seventh, sixth and fifth 
which they'd be within their rights to because they've got a great new stadium and only a few years ago they're in a Champions League final. Then it's going to fall down again. I'm almost like, you know, Graham Potter needs to stand there. Daniel Levy needs to stand there and go, this is what we're going to do for the next two years. Harry, cheers. Thanks very much. Thanks, Man City. There's a big bag of cash. Uh, here we're going to go and buy all these young players and we're going to make us this version of Tottenham Hotspur. And, and that, that won't happen, but but that's the, you know, that's where we're heading in this discussion. And And football isn't, unfortunately, isn't as sophisticated as that at the minute, I don't think. But to, ca- to carry on your point, Tom, there is a real chance or a danger rather that in three years' time, we will look back on this season and we will go, wow, Daniel Levy decided to sacrifice the Carabao Cup and he decided to sacrifice a top four finish because he was so annoyed with Jose Mourinho. I mean, that... And, and that might have that might that might have started a decline, a massive decline. I think we'll look back at three years and see and see a decline like Arsenal's, unless something pretty dramatic's done. I think we'll see. I honestly think there's big parallels between the two. I think this is a a squad that's in decline. They don't have the, they don't have the funds to really overhaul it, and it's a huge job for one person to come in and make enough of a difference to avert that slide, basically. I might as well say we might be looking back on Graham Potter, first English manager to win the Champions League in three years. Then, no, you know, just just to be contra- contrary uh, on the podcast. Listen, Spurs fans, if you didn't enjoy what you just heard, you will enjoy what you're about to hear next. We'll be discussing Arsenal, but remember, if you're enjoying uh, the podcast, give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. And make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times right now. If you sign up today, you will get yourself one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. And remember, you'll be able to get our great journalism across all of your devices. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books. Contacts. Calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. So, Arsenal season is over. Out of the Europa League semi-finals at the hands of their former manager and his club Villarreal, the yellow submarine. It's now unlikely they will even be in Europe at all next season for the first time in 25 years. Gregor, firstly, before we get to the Premier League this weekend, that second leg at home from Arsenal in the Europa League was goalless. Now, it was it was a game that Arsenal needed to win 1-0 to go through to the Europa League final and keep alive their chances of being in next season's Champions League. It was a purely pathetic showing from Mikel Arteta's side. How can the fans explain to me, and maybe you can, how can you blame Stan Kroenke for that? You can't blame... Well, I mean, everything in, in Arsenal's malaise stems from the ownership. So in a way, everything you can play, you can lay at the door of of the Cronkies. So, um, but at the same time, you're right. Arsenal's players on the day were abject, and it's very hard to to know what you can put that down to. Whether it's like pressure, um, it's not that they don't care. That's always levelled at players, and it's never true. Very, very rarely is that true. So they cared, but they maybe froze and. I also think there are you know serious question marks about Arteta now. I've always thought that you know got to he needs to be back. I still think he deserves more time. He needs, he deserves 
to complete the the exodus, the mass exodus of some of these players that have been around for too long, um, and replace them, and you know have a team that resembles something a bit more like a team that he's constructed. But there's just too much confusion. There's too much kind of chopping and changing, and I, I just honestly don't know where they would be. Where would Arsenal be without Saka? Or, or Emil Smith Smith Rowe this season. Two guys from the academy. Where, where would they be? He is the Sack is the shining beacon in Arsenal's season this season. Like there's by far and away they put their player of the year. And this kid who's so versatile. You know, he played left back at the weekend and he's and he was the best player on the pitch. He's played midfield and he's the best player on the pitch. But you know, where where would Arsenal be without him this season? You dread to think. And like I don't know. I just there's, I don't think there's much else to say. I think that they they need to get rid of Jaka. They need to get rid of Guendouzi still if he's if he's threatening to come back. They need to get rid of more players, <laughs> and they need to and they need to be backed. And you know, there's noises now that come coming out of Arsenal saying that well, coming out of Arteta particularly saying that yes, he is going to be backed. Um, but even then, you don't have you're not filled with confidence that, that Arsenal have a structure in place that will be good enough in the transfer market. So who knows? Are we at the end? Are we, have we seen Arsenal bottom out yet? I don't know. Alison, what do you think? Um, should Arteta stay? Should he be backed as Gregor alludes to? Well, we'll fi- actually, we'll find the, the answer to that when the, the crowds are back because the fans got rid of Wenger in a very unceremonious way. They definitely got rid of Good Evening. They definitely kept in Arteta when it started to go wrong. And uh, it's it would be very unusual, I think, for a very demanding group of fans to keep backing a manager if the results are not, you know, if they're floundering mid-table, playing in some new, strange Europa League mark. 20. I don't know what it is. It's ridiculous. I mean, wasting all those Thursday nights on nothing, essentially. Um, Europe's one. That thing, yeah. But I mean, I can't see that the, the, the Arsenal fans have proven that they would have patience in that scenario because it's the way it's gone so far. It's, um, well, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the importance of. Um, a manager with you know strong views and an identity of what knows what he wants to do. You you spoke very eloquently there, Gregor, about the importance of of Saka and Smithrow. But you don't. Every week it seems with Arteta, he puts his faith in the older, more expensively bought players. Then he dumps them, and then he brings them in again. And then you don't you, don't see, you see nothing from William. And then and suddenly William at the weekend looks like he did when he played for Chelsea, as though he had that in him all along. Well, why hasn't his manager found a way to use that? You know, why is he why is he scoring his first goal for Arsenal now in May and looking like he's 22? Uh, it's strange. I don't see, I really don't see a pattern with Arteta. It's very easy to assume because he's young and it's his first job and he loves Arsenal, that he does have a plan and it's based on youth and bringing through youth. But he has not shown me that he understands how to knit in the the more expensively assembled, more mature players who ought to be giving him more. And I do doubt if a manager can't do that because that's one of the toughest things, isn't it? Knitting it it all together. That's the hard bit. 
he hasn't shown that he can do that. They veer horribly between being acceptable and unacceptable. And I don't know how long you give that, but I would have, I think right now I wanted to, I'd want to see more proof that Arteta can do that. He seems to be leaping from panic deployment of personnel to the next panic of deployment. It's not management to me. I feel massively sorry for Mikel Arteta, actually. The more I watch Arsenal and the more I think about the state the club's in, um, he is an incredibly inexperienced manager. I remember, Alison, you talking about him in contrast to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, making a very good point that while Solskjaer had taken on a huge job at Manchester United, he had been a manager before. Um, Arteta is clearly a very talented coach, rated by Pep Guardiola, but had never been a manager. And to your point about the players, I then think they're very inexperienced as a club even at boardroom level, you know, they bring in Edu, former player, only re- not long retired into a big role within the business. So we've got a manager who's never been a manager before. And I was then reflecting on the signings they made and the contracts they gave to people like David Louise, Cedric, um, and signing players like Willian. And I half wonder whether it fits to your analogy of Arteta just wanting some experience around the club in any sense, okay, there's no experience in the dugout, there's no experience in the boardroom, but at least we can have some experience on the pitch. But those players have let him down. They've been very poor. And so that's why I think in his defence, he flip-flops back and forth between, right, please, please show me what you can do. I really need you to, you know, give this team some experience and some structure. And then they fail him. So he goes to Smith Rowe and all the young kids. And you do see him on the touchline he looks like a very isolated man. You often see him almost chuntering to himself on the touchline. When Willian scored his free kick, there was a moment where he kind of just picked up a water bottle and then sat down and almost said to himself, why the bloody hell didn't you have done that earlier in the season? You know, where was that earlier in the season when I needed you? Um, so I, I think that's where it stems from, that, that flip-flopping uh, that you've uh, highlighted there. I think it stems from a desire for these experienced players to stand up and I think they've, they've really let him down. And that's why you have, after Saka, one of the only highlights of the season being a guy who was on loan at Huddersfield last season in Emile Smith Rowe. And he's great, but it should not, that shouldn't be the case for Arsenal. And it's also been particularly strange to see, you know, Joe Willock's been uh, excelling recently in the poverty of Arsenal squad. Why, <laughs> why would you send him on loan? He didn't set the world of, like, like the, like, like Smith Rowe and Saka. I understood that definitely, but. He's a player who's like box to box dynamic, and he's impressed. And I, I don't see that was a strange decision for me as well. The situation at Arsenal, I think it, it's just difficult, and it's it looks to be a pretty dark road at the moment. Um, whether Mikel Arteta stays or not, a lot of my Arsenal fans saying we'll judge him after ten games next season. Will he be there by Christmas? In a word, Tom. Yes. Gregor. Yes. You think he should be? If he loses the first ten games of next season, you think he should still be the manager? Maybe, maybe then you can call it into question, but I genuinely think, and this is going to sound really extremist, but I think Arsenal, with the players that they've got and the position they're in, without massive investment, if they sack Mikel Arteta, their next option is hiring someone like Sean Dyche. I genuinely think that. Hold on a minute. Arsenal would be better if Sean Dyche was the manager. <laughs> well, let's not go in this wormhole, please. They would be. No, they no, would no, be. No, but no, no, they would be. They would be. I'm sorry. They would be. I, I'm, I'm prepared to say that at the moment, some of the performances that Arsenal have put in, shambolic. shambolic. You, my, my, sorry, you can my get his team about... up for a game 
a massive game, the game of their season. He can get a team up for a match. I mean, Ben Mee and Tarkovsky will run through a brick wall for him. Did you think that Mikel Arteta could get the Arsenal players to do that when you watch their second leg against Villarreal? I'm not sure they'd go to his birthday party. But I agree, but that comes down to the inexperience of him as a manager. And he's so... He must be in such a difficult position because he could G them up and then send them out and they'd be 2-0 down after 20 minutes. And so I'm not defending their approach in that game, but I, I, all I'm saying is that I look at Mikel Arteta and I can understand what's happening. And to your point about 10 games, there's every chance they could lose the first 10 games. But my point then has to be, where do you go after that? Because he might lose the first 10 games. The guy's not been a manager that long. He's clearly a very good coach, but he's getting no help from the experienced players on the pitch. He's getting very little help from the boardroom. The guy is absolutely isolated and he will be the one chucked out. It just, I, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem right to me. But Ryan, Ryan, Ryan Mason is also a highly inexperienced manager. None of us are saying, yes, he should maybe still be there if he loses the first 10 games of next season. Oh, wait, come on. Ryan Mason hadn't been part of a coaching team with one of the best managers in the world who'd won several trophies. So I take your point on managerial experience, but there's then at least the elevation of coaching nous, of which I, that was the premise of why Arteta was hired. Because he's a good coach who's going to learn to be a manager. And all I'm saying is, maybe there's there's going to be very few jobs tougher than the period in charge of Arsenal that he's in that he's in at the minute. So if if there can be some investment, if there can be some th- rethinking of what, what the goal is for Arsenal next season, and Arteta can deliver it, they might be in a better position with an incredibly talented coach who suddenly will then be one of the toughest, thickest skin managers in the Premier League because he'll have been through one of the most difficult periods at a top club that we've seen in recent years. How do you know he's an incredibly talented coach? Well, from what I've heard, when I chat to my mate Pep Guardiola, he says very good things about him. <laughs> no, no. I, that, that's, that's the widely accepted uh, narrative. D- discussion. Around, narrative, that's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Narrative. It's the widely accepted narrative around Arteta is that he's a very talented coach. And from everything you read about his time at City, he had a big involvement in the way that they played and in the tactics that Pep's team delivered. So that's, that's, that's where I'm basing that on. I might have been a groupie with Fleetwood Mac. It wouldn't make me as good a singer as Stevie Nicks, would it? <laughs> I've heard you've got a lovely singing voice, Alison. I was going to say, give us a couple of bells and we'll, we'll, we'll be the judge. <laughs> uh, listen, Arsenal aren't the only club that have to make a decision over their manager this summer. Look, West Bromwich Albion, who they beat 3-1 at the weekend, will have to do the same. Uh, Albion relegated from the Premier League for a joint record fifth time as Sam Allardyce fails to work his survival magic. Just four wins in 22 league games under Big Sam. Um, Gregor, with the benefit of hindsight, bringing Sam Allardyce in, sacking Slavin Bilic, did that appointment lack imagination? Did it lack imagination? Well, it was just, it was pretty stark and clear in its intentions. <laughs> it was, you know, Fireman Sam, come in and save us. And I think we've seen that West Brom have improved, but it took long for, too long for them to, to, too, too long for them to improve, unfortunately. Um, you know the question is whether is now whether he's going to stay and whether he should stay. And you know, I don't think I don't think West Brom fans were like overly enamoured by his appointment. They've had, you know, they've they've had Tony Pulis, and even though they were surviving, and I think they reached as high as eighth or tenth or something like that at their best. You know, the crowd started to dwindle. It's it's this kind of recurring cycle now in football. I think it's he came in to try and help them survive. That was just 
you know, a clear objective. That was his only purpose. If he stays, it's probably because, you know, the thought process behind it is he's, he's got a good chance of getting West Brom promoted with a little bit of backing. And that's true. But look at the bigger picture. You know, if you go two or three, two or three years again down the line, um, and you're watching Sam Sam Allardyce's football every week, then you probably have the same reaction among the fans as as they did when Tony Pulis was there. So it wouldn't be a surprise to see the short term thinking win and see Sam Allardyce stay and try and lead them back into the Premier League next season. Tom, the last twelve games under Sam Allardyce, um, they're twelfth in the Premier League for points per game. Do they keep Big Sam in the Championship? I think it's a very difficult thing to then try and replicate that form in the Championship. We say it over and over again, don't we, how difficult the Championship is. And I think the Championship as a beast is changing all the time and actually getting harder. Uh, I don't know whether that idea of the Big Sam spend a bit of money, get promoted from the Championship necessarily exists anymore. We've seen a bit of success for the likes of Mick McCarthy at Cardiff. But if you look at the teams that have come back up, they've got a certain way of playing. Norwich, Watford hired a new manager but kept a lot of their best players. I think if you look at Norwich and Watford's squads, I think they're stronger than West Brom's currently um, in terms of the talent they've got. I think there's some teams in the playoffs in the Championship who've got more talented players than West Brom. I think particularly when you consider they're probably going to lose Sam Johnson in goal, who's been a big part of any small success they've had. Mateus Pereira, who's been much better under Sam Allardyce um, and scored scored some excellent goals lately, but I don't know whether he can stay. I just don't know whether it's necessarily as simple and as black and white anymore as keep experienced, big name manager, spend a bit of money, you'll probably get out of the championship. I think they could easily keep him. And though you know that kind of upturn in form that you mentioned won't necessarily be replicated in the championship. The golf's so big that they would be in the top six. They'd have to do something disastrous not to be in the top six next season. The golf is growing by the year and we see it and parachute payments are skewing the competition so much that West Brom are basically like Norwich in that as long as they don't mess up and they they can keep together the bulk of their squad, they will be in the top six next season. And Sam Allardyce would, would be able to lead them there too. We can say a lot about his style of football, but will be just as effective in the Championship. If he can keep together the bulk of his squad, as Tom says, that I think those two players will probably depart, Johnson and, and Pereira. Um, I don't think they've got many other players who will be highly coveted. And if they can keep the bulk of that squad together, um, they'd have to do something pretty calamitous not to be in the top six because, as I say, the golf... The golf is growing every year between the Premier League and the Championship. Still big decisions to make at the Hawthorns. We'll see if Sam Allardyce is given a long-term deal uh, back in football at the club and maybe back in the Championship very soon as well. Um, look, finally, before we go, wanted to have a little bit of fun. Uh, you may have seen the news over the weekend that music superstar Ed Sheeran has decided to sponsor his favourite club, Ipswich Town. Do well was his message uh, on social media as he announced the news. And it got us thinking, about the best uh, music and football collaborations in history. Tom, I know you've you've been asking the, the great British public what they think. Yeah, well, lots of responses from uh, loyal game podcast listeners. David Bowman points out that St. Albans are sponsored by the band Enter Shikari, which I didn't know. Uh, Geraint, Geraint Jones reminds me that Margate and Libertines had a hookup with a very snazzy kit a few years ago. Um, I was going to try and make a can't stand me now joke, but I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> 
Jake Bug also sponsored Notts County, uh, which has been pointed out to me. Alex Lowe, our de- deputy rugby correspondent, with one of my favourite suggestions, which I didn't realise, which is that Iron Maiden are massive, massive West Ham fans, Steve Harris in particular, uh, and they had an uh, they've got a shirt on sale, which is like an Iron Maiden West Ham collaboration, which is fantastic, uh, and I've never seen that before. Uh, Chris points out that Wet 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 sponsored Clyde Bank in the nineties. Um, Wet Wet Wet, absolute classic band in my family household growing up. Um, one of the first songs I ever knew, Off by Heart. So there you go. Nice. Uh, nice. Uh, <laughs> my but my favourite favourite suggestion, which I didn't know about, is that Johnny points out that Donna Summer and Arsenal collaborated for the song Hot Stuff for the 1998 FA Cup final. Keep telling us we're boring, we'll just keep on scoring now, which is a magnificent lyric. And given Donna's one of her classic songs is, of course, I Feel Love. I think Mikel Arteta just needs to feel some love. <laughs> Everything will be all right at Arsenal. So that's my favourite. Now, I want a story of meeting a musician at football, and I just think Alison Arant's going to deliver here. Because so many musicians must support Liverpool. Come on. Uh, have I met any musicians Liverpool? No, but music, I mean, music is, I think, the way I, I, I do associate partly growing up and going to Anfield, the, the, the music played over, you know, the tannoy um, before a game matters enormously. And it, it, it differentiates the, 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 the NAF clubs and the classic clubs. A lot of your time is spent at the ground, not watching football. It's, it's, you know, it's waiting. It's waiting for stuff to happen. And if that is filled with good music, I mean, astonishing. And in lockdown, I have to say, the music they play at Spurs is, oh, it's right up my street. And it's all stuff I haven't heard before, but is like sort of club classics feel to it. And I just, I'm always wandering around, pat- patting Spurs officials on the back and saying, what is it? What's that? What's that track? That's amazing. And it makes a huge difference between not just when, not just to your feel of what a club is like, but when in lockdown, when it really matters what music is played, some people have got it and some people have not got it. Some clubs even play wet, wet, wet. Madness. Total madness. And uh, yeah, on, you're let's right. Let's not fall out now, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be slagging the lads. Great tunes. <laughs> Some people have got it. Some people haven't. You've got the game podcast this week. Thank you for listening. Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson. Uh, thank you for being with me for the past hour or so. Before you go, remember, you can get a subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times right now across all of your devices for more of our award-winning journalism. Uh, if you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free as well. So just go online at searchthetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. Big matches to come this week in terms of top four high We'll be back with you on Thursday. We'll see you again then. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.